Welcome to the Radical Departures podcast, your source for startup storytelling. We're your hosts, Abby and Chris. You'll hear informative discussions full of valuable expertise and actionable insight on the issues you face when launching and growing your startup. This is episode 19 of the Radical Departures podcast. Our guest today is Kurt Mumel, Vice President of the Europe, Middle East, and Africa region at Data IQ. This episode gives you a window into the operations of one of the hottest startups in France today. Kurt has been with Data IQ for the last five years and has been part of their seriously impressive growth and development. Looked to as an example startup in the French ecosystem, Data IQ has been putting a great deal of resources into international expansion recently. In this episode, Kurt shares some of the company's strategies as they continue to grow. He discusses how Data IQ's sales approach differs from so many companies out there today, and how the founders of the company keep their core values at the forefront of operations, even through their rapid expansion. So without further ado, here's episode 19 with Kurt Mumel. Today, we're here with Kurt from Data IQ. Kurt, perhaps you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, the company. Yeah, sure. So my name is Kurt Mumel. I'm currently the vice president for the EMEA region at uh, Data IQ. I guess if you're not familiar with Data IQ, it's a software developer, you know, a startup here based uh, originally in Paris. Basically, the short story is founded in 2013 by four co-founders, all French, all here in Paris who had all been working in data science, big data in different ways across their careers and were not satisfied with the tool sets that were available to them. There were plenty of tools available, but there was not one platform to bring together all the different steps and different tools that you would need within an enterprise setting to work on data, big data, using machine learning or not. And so they came together to create this company and the product now which is basically a software platform that, uh, that our clients install and uh, then work on across different profiles within their company, data analysts, data scientists, data engineers, on the various, let's say, data-driven challenges and problems that their company may be facing. So you can kind of think of it as a, as a tool set or as a, uh, often I talk about like a well-designed uh, kitchen with all the different tools and machines that you could possibly need. You bring the chefs, you bring the sous chefs, uh, you bring uh, the cooks, but given the right tools and the right ability to use something, you can be more efficient. And then that analogy breaks down because it would be as if uh, you you know, do that, you have these great tools and you have your sous chef and your chef and they make a great recipe, but then they can automate that and like redo it without having to actually redo it themselves. So that analogy kind of breaks down a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> but the basic idea, right, is a platform that makes it both easier and faster for individuals to do their work on top of data, makes it easier for an organization with different profiles and different teams to get them to collaborate, and then makes it easier for those products, those data products, to go more quickly through the prototyping stage and then also manage the deployment into production. To me, it sort of seems like you guys are kind of the you're the tool in that market. You're the market leaders. Well, uh, when we talk about you know competitive positioning, I often draw two axes. The horizontal axis is often the, let's say, a project lifecycle. When you're working on data, you need to connect to your data sources, your various databases, your you know cloud infrastructure, wherever your data is. You need to prepare that data. You need to process it. You need to maybe apply machine learning to it, and then you need to deploy it into production, and then you need to iterate over that over time as the data changes, as the business challenges change. 
So that's one axis. And then I often draw a vertical axis, which are the different skills or the different team members who might need to contribute to these kind of projects. And so you might have everyone from basic data analyst or business analyst who might be working in Excel, all the way up to, you know, your PhD level data scientists who spend all their day coding in Python, Scala, Julia, whatever esoteric language they prefer. What we see on the competitive landscape is, let's say, partial coverage, that maybe you have some platforms that uh, appeal to only one profile, but do the entire end-to-end -end project lifecycle. Or you have other tools that perhaps can appeal to different profiles, but they only do one step in the process. And where we're different is we're getting you know, kind of full coverage over, again, if you're imagining the axes, the, the four quadrants of that uh, graph. So end-to-end -end and for multiple profiles. And for now, we are you know, relatively well differentiated in that space. We see more and more competition coming on from all corners. But uh, you know, having been working on these problems with this single vision since 2013, I think it's safe to say that we do have a relatively good advance on the other players in the market. That said, you know, we remain constantly paranoid and looking over our shoulder for, for what's coming. <laughs> Now, you're in charge of EMEA, so how does that work? You're working with partners, you're working with direct salespeople. Yeah. How does your role work? So my role specifically oversees both uh, sales and partnerships, mm -hmm. and then you know, the technical components of each, the, the pre-sales side. And historically, our business model has been really driven by direct sales. And uh, you know, even when we were entering the U.S. market from France, and that was one of the first things that I was working on when I joined in 2015, that's always been really important to us to have that direct connection with the customers because that's where we're learning if what we're doing makes sense for them, if it's valuable for them, and if we need to change, if we need to introduce new features into our roadmap, if we need to prioritize certain features. So we maintain a really strong uh, direct sales model, which uh, I think has really been key to not only the business success, but the you know the good development and efficient development of the, uh, the product as well. But increasingly, we are doing certain amount of indirect sales still strong, you know, very small minority of, uh, of our overall business. But what's very important for us is working with partners who can do consulting, who can do data science, who can do data analytics, who can do data engineering for our clients. As a software development company, what our board is expecting to see is software revenue, license revenue right. uh, coming in. You know, they don't want to see too much uh, services revenue. So we're building a company which is optimized for software revenue. So within EMEA, which uh, uh, doesn't no longer includes France or the UK, they've been spun off into, into their own territories. What we're doing is building out into the various you know big markets within the region with direct sales capabilities, but also with uh, you know building up the the partnership network so that we can identify new opportunities and then also have partners who with whom we can work for actually implementing the projects that uh, uh, that our clients are looking to do. What does an implementation look like? Is it something that's uh, days, weeks, months? Mm. How does that uh, work? Because it's if you say you're primarily a, 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 rev, a license fee based company, mm. is it a little bit of just a little bit of implementation? Yeah. So uh, my joke is that uh, let's say uh, software integrators hate us because there's not a hundred days to sell on the back of the integration. I think clients appreciate that, right? Because that's not necessarily added value work. Uh, that's just an additional step to get to day one where you can actually start working with it. The installation is really quite simple, even though it's uh, designed to be installed on a wide variety of environments. The basic installation is four lines in the command line on the server to, uh, to get it up and running. Yeah, so it's really you know, made to be user-friendly and easy to get up and running. Typically, what we see is that 
over the course of an evaluation or a POC that we may be doing proof of concept, then you know typically the solution has actually already been installed during that phase. And then we get to the licensing question. And you know, once we, we get through that, then they're ready to go with the, uh, the software, which has already been installed. Yeah, so I'm not a, uh, uh, let's say, a recent uh, political refugee from any of the, uh, <laughs> uh, any, either situations in the UK or in the US. I've been here for, what is it, 11, 11 and a half years now. I moved to France in 2006, basically after I graduated from the University of Michigan. I was born and raised in Michigan. And then in, what was it, my third year at the University of Michigan, I met a woman who went out to become my wife. Uh, she is French. And on a whim, uh, after I graduated, it was between my living environment in, let's call it, uh, Detroit suburbs versus Paris. Yeah, that sounds pretty interesting, Paris. Let's go give it a try. Max to most extreme possibility, three years we would stay. But here we are 11 years later with, uh, you know, jobs, kids, house, everything. <laughs> so you came from a software background before you joined DataIQ? No, I didn't, in fact, which is a surprise to me to find myself where I am now. That's I'm extremely happy with what I'm doing now. But no, I uh, when I originally came to France, again, you know, that was straight out of college, so didn't really have uh, any professional experience to speak of. I was working as a projectionist in a movie theater, which was another great experience. But <laughs> you know, one of a dying breed, actually loading the uh, 35 millimeter film into the projector. But after that, I was you know coming over here, and so first I was actually teaching English in a public high school outside of Paris. Then what did I do? I created the, um, you know, let's say the local chapter of a, a very small American company that was specialized in doing or creating and running treasure hunts for corporate customers as a sort of a team building activity, which was great fun. I ran around and uh, built treasure hunts and it was a great way to discover Paris. That, of course, is not really in line with what I had studied uh, or in college and what I thought I wanted to do with my life. I'd studied uh, environmental science and philosophy. I wanted to get more back into, uh, the, uh, into the environmental space. And so I was able to get a, a job at UNESCO, the United Nations what is it, Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, which has its headquarters here in Paris. They have a small renewable energy program that I worked on for a few months. That was not the best experience, so I got out of that and went into, uh, into consulting. And actually, the, the biggest part of my career prior to .iq was spent in consulting, uh, focused on, let's say, sustainable development and environmental challenges in the public sector. Uh, so working a lot with the European Commission on you know, figuring out what their environmental policy should be, making recommendations through you know, studies and so on. There was a little uh, entrepreneurial uh, interlude, which, uh, <laughs> which ultimately didn't pan out. We ended up, uh, uh, the consultancy got bought by one of the large professional services companies. And after about a year there, I knew that it was time to move on. For a long time, been wanting to get into technology, into software, into a startup. And basically, there was one Saturday afternoon where I knew that I didn't want to continue where I was uh, currently. There was a job fair, the, uh, the Rude Baguette uh, job fair, uh, which uh, was being organized at the time. For the first time in my life, I printed out a bunch of CVs and I stuffed them in my bag and went to a job fair and started handing them out. And one of the last companies that I met was Deadiku. And uh, yeah, they were looking for somebody, an international profile, basically non-French, who would be able to start selling outside of France. And, um, you know, they took a bet on me, you know, not having direct sales or software experience in the past. And me, I took a bet on them because, you know, again, not coming out of the space, I really wasn't in a position to know if the technology was any good or well positioned to the needs of the market. And I installed it and tested it out and it seemed interesting. But more than anything, I, I liked the people that I was that I was meeting through the interview process. They seem to be both, you know, extremely intelligent, technically proficient, but also fundamentally good people as well. And I said, well, what do I have to lose? I don't want to continue in my current path. So let's give it a try. And uh, that was the end of 2014, the interview process. And then I started in, uh, in January 2015.
Now, how large, how many people were there at the company back then? So I was the uh, 21st employee. Yeah, I think I was the 20th to sign and then the 21st to start. And now how many people are there today, plus or minus? Yeah, so about 110. So that's about three years later. Uh, we If you do the, the scaling, it comes out to just a, a bit less than doubling year on year. I imagine you've seen a lot of things change there. You've seen, are there other foreigners, other Americans? Oh, sure, yeah. When I started, it was uh, myself as the only non-French person on the, uh, the the team. There was one other person, Pauline, who does marketing, who was you know, French and American. But otherwise, it was all French. It's certainly changed a, a great deal. Those first uh, months, that first year, we were doing everything from Paris. I was selling into the United States from Paris. I had some customers who said, you know, who only realized that in the last stages of the deal that I was actually not physically present in, in the U.S., which is uh, yeah, a good sign for the you know, telecommunications and the abilities that we have now to mask our physical location. But yeah, where we are now is, well, we've got you know, a really nice office in, uh, in New York, down in, in lower Manhattan in the financial district, beautiful view on the, uh, on the Statue of Liberty. We've got how many people, some 30 or so people in the U.S., uh, you know, employed in the U.S. out of uh, the American arm. That The company is actually headquartered officially in the U.S. now. Uh, that happened with some of the fundraising that we've done, and that we've done since then. It's been a huge change. The thing is, though, when, when you're living it day to day, you know, it's often incremental, uh, yeah. the, the change. And it's a bit of the, uh, you know, the, the frog in the boiling water conundrum where uh, you don't really notice the change until sometimes there's some event uh, that makes you think, oh, wow, that really is different. But most, most often it's just more of the same, one more person, two more people coming on, until all of a sudden there's you know, something that happens that you know, really makes you stand up and say, oh, yeah, this is one of those phase change moments where you know, we've shifted from this to, to something new. Did you experience any kind of cultural hiccups along the way? Yeah, there definitely have been some hiccups. I mean, and, and that's to be expected, I would think. On the cultural side, we had some difficulty hiring in the U.S. early on. Part of the challenge was that we weren't particularly visible, which meant, you know, that it was difficult to find good quality candidates. We're trying to manage them from Paris. And so there were some, some stumbles that were made early on. That said, I, I'm impressed with the way that we've gotten over those relatively quickly. And we've had some of our you know, members of our top management move to the U.S. now to, uh, to start bootstrapping things there. That's definitely helping. And then always you're, you're trying to suss out what is, let's say, is it, when you notice a difference between the way that one person does something versus uh, another person, let's say on the, on the sales team, is it cultural American versus French difference? Or is it a difference between individuals? Or is it just, you know, kind of this Dadaiku culture itself, which is a little bit different, where we were discussing before we started recording about, uh, you know, kind of our uh, end of quarter culture. So we're recording this today on uh, December 19th, so uh, deep into uh, Q4. And uh, yeah, what we were saying was basically that uh, Dataiku as a company doesn't put a lot of emphasis on end of quarter or even end of year closings. That's driven by, by two factors. One is, well, we're not on the public market, uh, so we don't need to do shareholder reports. And, and you know, there's not that financial incentive to show, quote unquote, good numbers for the end of the quarter or, or, or an end of the year. The other factor, uh, you know, and who does pay attention, of course, the shareholders and the board, but there's a very good working relationship with them. And, you know, they're very pleased with what they're seeing. And that gets me to the second point, which is simply that things are going well, which means that, you know, when you're above your target, there isn't that urgency to really close something before December 31st rather than, let's say, January 5th or January 10th. And so you have this big cultural difference where, you know, the clients in many times are expecting that we, that we come with that urgency and we have to explain to them that, no, we're, you know, it's really not a big deal and simply delaying it until this, you know, delaying the negotiation or the, the contract signature until uh, that week between Christmas and New Year, that's not going to incite us to, get, uh, to give a bigger discount. 
then also we have you know some uh, uh, some training that we have to do with some of the more experienced salespeople that we're hiring who might be coming from places where that is the norm, which it is of course in a, in a lot of the software industry where there is this huge pressure to get it in before the thirty first. And we have to explain that no, it's it's really not what we're doing here. And what I explained to my team is you know we want to sign the deal when it's the right time for Dataiku for the client and ultimately for the opportunity. Of course, we don't want to delay anything artificially, but we don't want to accelerate it artificially either. We want to do what's best for ultimately the, the size of the opportunity. Of course, we're, <laughs> we're a profit-motivated company. We want to assign bigger and bigger opportunities. But we also want to do it in a way which is going to create the right relationship with the customer as well. And we don't want to have a relationship where there's an expectation that uh, delaying things is going to be to their benefit in certain ways. There's this cultural aspect as well, which is sometimes specific to Dataiku as well. And so coming back to the previous point, how do you suss out what is American versus French, Dataiku versus other, individual versus individual? That's kind of a complicated uh, test to run. You know, we don't have a good control group to run that. The very short answer is absolutely. There have been all sorts of, you know, uh, cultural stumbles along the way. But I think in some ways we may have it somewhat easier, right, in the B2B space than, than you would in the B2C space, right? Because we don't have to make a mass appeal product. Ultimately, what we're selling on, well, of course, we want our site to look good and, you know, the, the marketing content that we're putting out is excellent and the team is doing a great job on that. But fundamentally, it's the core strength of the product and, you know, it's not so much selling on appearance or on, uh, uh, let's say, quicker trends within the, within the B2C market but on you know, kind of the core fundamental value proposition of the, uh, the product itself. And that helps break through uh, a lot of the cultural barriers that you may have when both parties are motivated to complete a transaction because there's shared value in it for them. You know, we get into something which resembles a little bit more closely a, uh, let's say, a rational actor model in traditional economics where people are making decisions based on what is actually in their best interest rather than, do I like the way that the app icon lo looks? It, did it get to the top of the, uh, the app store? That would be a different challenge. I wonder if it's if some of these cultural issues are related to data scientists. What is that difference? What is that different breed? I mean, data scientists, they're extremely capable individuals who are in very high demand on the market today. You know, it's somebody who you know, traditionally we talk about this, uh, this unicorn who has, you know, kind of computer science skills around the ability to set up infrastructure and set up computing environments and so on mathematical or statistical capabilities to understand the uh, the algorithms that they're going to be working on and so on and then a business understanding about what are the you know the actual business needs and you know historically you know this is the unicorn that doesn't actually exist right and that's not true i mean it, the truth is that there are certainly individuals who do have that ability and it is it's an extremely valuable thing for companies which means that again it's a position which is in high demand it's also an extremely technical position as well and often what we see is that uh, data scientists have built up a way of working, which is very much their own. In some cases, data scientists, they've been you know, kind of left to their own devices and you know, they just come up with a, yeah, with a workflow, which is adapted to their local needs. And often you know, what we're talking about with them is how can they, as a data scientist, leverage their contribution to the organization. And sometimes that means that they, that they would have to transition out of what is currently their local optimum for how they work so that the organization can transition to a global optimum. And that, of course, does have some costs uh, associated with it. But if the data scientist is motivated to maximize his or her impact on the organization, then you know, typically that's something that, the, that they appreciate and that, that they're sensitive to. We definitely try to differentiate ourselves, not just based on the product, but also based on our sales process. We want customers to come out of that experience of engaging with us, of engaging with ultimately our salespeople, you know, whatever their title may be, account executive, account manager, deployment strategist, uh, whatever it may be. We want them to come out of that experience 
feeling that it was a positive value-added experience for them. And that's what we've heard coming back when things have gone well, is that by working with us, they were better able to understand their challenges, better able to anticipate what some future problems might be. And that in some ways, you know, it really was a, uh, uh, you know, as useful beyond just obtaining a license and completing the transaction. That's kind of the fundamental is that we want to do things differently on the sales side. That's coming from, I think, the, the culture of the, uh, the founders. We don't have kind of traditional salesperson among the founders. And I think that's to our benefit. That said, the challenge when you're hiring atypical profiles is that, you know, the ramp up might be a little bit longer. We need to grow quickly. We need people to be operational as quickly as possible. So we're hiring more and more experienced uh, profiles, but always that are, let's say, well adapted or you know, going to be able to grow into that culture th uh, that, we're, that we're looking to promote. One which is very much customer oriented, one which is value driven, and one which is going to look to, yeah, again, add value in every interaction that they have with the customer. So part of that is hiring atypical profiles. One of the members of our team who's, uh, who's doing a fantastic job is a former opera singer <laughs> and, uh, you know, and uh, had some other professional experience as well, but uh, you know, coming from a very different profile. And she's doing uh, just a fantastic job. And, uh, but at the same time, then we also have uh, others who've been working in the software industry for 20 or more years, and they're doing a great job as well. Because of, you know, ultimately, we look more, we, we try to find individuals and people who are good people who are going to be a good fit more than, you know, just the right CV or the right resume with the right experience, especially when you're hiring in the sales uh, for sales roles. You know, you get all these CVs in and everyone has overperformed. Uh, you know, the, the structure is almost exactly the same. Everyone's always done between 98 and 157 <laughs> percent, you know, quarter after quarter uh, over the past fiscal years. Everyone's perfect on paper. You try to, you know, read through that. And then it's really through the interview process that you try to get, you know, get down to who is the, uh, the person behind the paper. And are they ultimately motivated to join us in this, this adventure on the sales side, right? It's good if they have a certain amount of, let's say, financial motivation behind them. But ultimately, we don't want that to be the only thing. I think it's a real strength of character. It's a real benefit that the founders have that vision because you hear so many startups where often, especially in the B2B space, the founders are technical. And for one reason or another, they buy into the same theory. They want to talk about having consulting type sales. They want to talk about these. But in reality, you know, they ultimately sort of fall for somebody's telling them what you need is somebody that's going to come in here, crack heads, kick a little ass at the end of the quarter. And it's you see the cycle. And I think it says a lot about the founders that they've chosen, despite the enormous pressure by the industry, by investors, by all these, that they choose what I think is the right model. Mm. That says a lot about them. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think there's two things. One is, you know, kind of the, the personality of the founders. When you have the CEO kicking off a management seminar where we're thinking about, you know, kind of future strategy and so on, by setting, up, setting it up as a Hegelian dialectic <laughs> around, you know, how we're going to create the thesis, the antithesis, and so on, we're going to create this tension between these different positions. That's one of the signs that we're doing things a little bit differently. The founders are, I would say, they don't fit the, you know, the typical mold for, you know, what you might imagine as, you know, startup founders, cracking heads, kicking ass and, and so on, right? <laughs> Which I appreciate. That's, a, a, the, you know, it's much more enjoyable to work with these human beings rather than guys who are just imagining uh, themselves as masters of the universe looking to uh, change the world with this revolutionary product. I mean, it's, it's something to be said about having broad range of interests, which go beyond simply, you know, making a, a big successful company even if that is one of their main focuses these days. 
there's the, the nature of the, the founders, which I think is kind of sets the, the core DNA for the company, and that persists through to uh, today. And then there's the way in which they brought in investors as well, because basically the, the company was founded in 2013, but there wasn't any venture capital raised until January, February of 2015, so a full two years later. So it was you know, bootstrapping mode for the first two years, selling consulting services and actually selling the first licenses, uh, building the product and selling the first licenses before investment came in. And so when you're in a position where you can say that the way we do it works, that's a much stronger position and allows you to protect that culture, which is now carried through to the, uh, the following rounds of investment that we've had then in, what was it, October 2016 and August, September of 2017, such that you know, we're, you know, have this very healthy relationship with the investors. The company, and I think this also goes back to you know, the, the quality of the vision, was able to prove out this vision before bringing money in which I think is very key as well, because you know, if we go back to what I was saying previously about how we position the product, the idea that you would create this end-to-end, cross-profile, multi-persona product, if you went and you, all that you had was a PowerPoint deck to say, you know, this is our vision, you know, it's this huge, broad, messy thing that appeals to everybody, the first thing that I imagine that a VC would say, especially a seed-level VC, would say, well, no, focus. You need to choose one persona and you need to execute for that one persona. You need to do the single best tool for this one person. Do that and we can fund that. That was not the core vision of Dataiku, neither for the company nor the product. And rather than running out and trying to raise money as early as possible, they went out and built it, proved that it worked, and then came and said, okay, we're ready to grow. And to do that, we need funding. Who's ready to come with us on that adventure? And you guys have been on a tear since then. You've raised uh, a few rounds. It's a significant amount of money. Yeah, that's right. And so it was uh, the the original seed round with two French uh, firms, Elvin and Serena. That was 3 million euros in uh, 2015 to get things started. Then 14 million with First Mark Capital out of New York. That was the one in 2016, our Series A. And then most recently, the Series B, which was 28 million with uh, Battery Ventures out of Boston. For us, we're, of course, thrilled to be, to be in a position where, you know, kind of cash in the bank is not the primary concern. More importantly, we're also very pleased with, with the quality of investors that we found and the, the great working relationship that we have with them. But we remain focused that the fundraising is just a means to an end. Also, this goes back to the culture of the founders, where after the most recent, the biggest fundraising round, you know, was, okay, are we going to have a party or, you know, what are we going to do? And kind of the message was from the founders was, why would we have a party about that? That's not what we're doing. This is just kind of necessary to do what we actually want to do. Let's have a party when we beat our objectives at the end of the year. You know, let's have a party when we make this great new release on the product side. That's really what we're doing. The fundraising, it's very visible and it's necessary, but it's not the game for us, right? You've received a lot of uh, confirmation from the market with this fundraising. Where do you go? What are you doing here in Europe? Are you going to be opening new offices? Or I don't know what you can say, but how do you use that money to make uh, Dataiku more of a standard than it is? That's ultimately the goal, right? Is we'd like for our platform to be the, you know, the standard platform for data science, advanced analytics, whatever the term you want to do is, let's call it data work in the enterprise. And of course, there's enterprises throughout Europe, <laughs> across all the different countries. And so pretty obviously, right, we need to go and we need to grow into, uh, uh, into these different countries. It's a difficult intellectual problem to say what would be the optimal model for, for that growth, because there's so much uncertainty about different markets and how are they going to react to it as we enter these new markets. So we don't necessarily come in with this you know, heavy top-down model saying that we need to open six new offices in these cities and have you know, three people here, you know, seven people there, and so on. 
we take a much more organic model that says, okay, well, let's build on the initial success. Let's capitalize on that. Okay, we've seen a lot of activity coming from this region within Europe. Well, let's accelerate the, uh, the recruitment in that region then. Right. And uh, yeah, I think that this is you know partly influenced by some of the experiences of the founders of the management team in other companies where there was this massive expansion plan, very top down, you know, you kind of roll out the map on the, <laughs> on the war room table and say, we're going to do this and this and this, and we're going to press in here and we're going to do that, you know, very militaristic. And then you can spend a lot of money on that and you can feel like you're doing productive work because it's a huge amount of work to, uh, to set that up. You have all the legal structures, hiring the teams, onboarding everyone. And then 18 months later, flop, <laughs> and you have to shut down half of those. We're really sensitive to that and we want to avoid that. That said, there's you know, some obvious markets that, that we have to focus on, the big economies of Europe. France being our home base, you know, that's kind of in some ways taken care of, right? We're well established in the French market. But then, you know, our neighbor to the east, Germany, is uh, obviously a big focus for us in the, um, in the coming years. One other question in sort of in this area. Do you guys sell to the same person in the organization today that you did when you started? Has that changed? And if it's changed, how or why has it changed? That's a good question. In some cases, yes, right? So we still have some of the same sales, let's call it, of the same shape that we had two, three years ago, which might be selling to to an individual team. That said, what we're seeing now is also a transition, right, where we're selling higher and higher up. And also in you know cases where there's thinking around the digital transformation of the company, which is often you know at the C-level, board level, kind of senior VP level, where teams are thinking about how do we transform the way that this company works digitally, which is a very broad and, <laughs> and sometimes ill-defined uh, thing. And one component of that is, well, fundamentally, how do people work on data within the company? How do people who are working on data work with one another? And that's where we find that we have something very intelligent to say. Given our experience from some of our initial clients who grew from you know, very small to very large clients, very large deployments very quickly, to be able to say, well, this is how they've managed that part of that transition. And this is how this other company has done it. These are the, the roadblocks that, that they came up against. This is how they got through that. And so we see more and more of those type discussions happening, and we expect that those will continue into the future while still at the same time selling also to individual teams of 5, 10, 15 people, but also then selling to organizational groups that might have hundreds and soon thousands of people who are going to need to work together on a platform. Every B2B sales manager, director, VP, startup industry always talks about somebody new comes in and say, obviously our fit is we're selling to C-level people. Why didn't you guys sell to C-level people before? There's sometimes a certain amount of pride, right, that makes people think that, I don't know, that they're not doing their job right if they're not speaking to somebody uh, all the way up at the top of the pyramid. Again, go back to who the founders are. We don't have that traditional salesperson, traditional sales manager among the, uh, the founders coming in with that thinking. The founders themselves had been managers of teams, had been looking for tooling, right? And so in some ways, they were looking to build the product and also sell the product in a way which would have appealed to them in their previous roles. So I think that's part of it as well. And of course, we were able to, to sell enough and on shorter sales cycles often to lower parts of the organization. There's a challenge of credibility, right? And I think that's one thing that DataQ takes very seriously, you know, coming with so many people with a deeply scientific background is what are we actually confident in saying, right? And where do we actually have proof or evidence that this actually is the right way to do things? And I think we would have found it difficult to come up with the pitch to the C-level if we hadn't already had the experience at the lower levels, where we can then say that, you know, this is actually how it works on the ground in terms of, and this is how users adopt the platform. This is the way the platform can be used in these different contexts. 
if we really went in kind of dry trying to sell up to that level, I think that uh, in some way, I mean, the, some of the founders were doing a lot of the selling at the time. In the early days, they would have been embarrassed in some ways to try and sell something that they weren't fully confident in. That's right. refreshingly uh, humble. There is a, the notion of humility is something that when we were having a discussion around values within the company, because you know, it's getting to be that time where we need to start making explicit some of the implicit uh, assumptions about who we are as a company, that uh, that humility kept coming back as something that, that we see as important. This is one of the subjects where we do also see a big difference between the American side of the organization and the French side. The American side is, you know, saying that we need to be doing more to say that we're great and we're the best. And uh, the French side is sometimes saying, well, we haven't actually explicitly proven that we're the best. So it would be inaccurate to suggest that we're the best if we've not actually measured that. We think we're pretty good and we like our product and we love our customers. But uh, the best, hmm, that would mean that we'd, uh, we've actually done the, the analysis. Humility is a big part of what we do. And we try to have that come through in the, in, in the sales cycle as well. That when you know, people are asking, you know, who are you? What does your product do? I mean, if I had to, I could come in and say something about world-changing, disruptive technology. This is the future. <laughs> you know, you're either with us or, uh, or you're not. You're missing the train. You know, something like that. I would feel embarrassed <laughs> doing that. What I'm much more comfortable doing and what we're more comfortable as a, as a company doing is going in and explaining, well, this is what our clients have experienced. It's been useful for them in these contexts. It's been valuable for them and you know, a good return on investment because there is a cost associated with it, of course, but it's been a good return for them because they've used it in this way and they've gotten this experience out of it. And so speaking from that experience and coming from a place of humility, I think that it's from what I hear from the clients, it's refreshing because they get hit over the head so often with the, you know, kind of the, the hard sell, that uh, world-changing pitch, which I imagine you, after you've heard that for the 10th time, it's like, it's just a piece of enterprise software. You're not changing the world. Hopefully you're helping me do my job a little bit more easily, but uh, come on, we're not uh, changing the world and there's but, bigger problems. <laughs> yeah. You've been here quite a while compared to some of us, and you've talked a lot about how Data IQ has changed over the years quite a lot in mm. only a few years. How have you seen France and Paris change around you, around the company, the startup scene in particular, but uh, in general? So it's, <laughs> on the one side, right, Paris never changes. You know, the city always feels the same. It's, uh, you know, kind of stuck in time, it's building codes and so on. But on the, more on the startup side, right, I think especially even since I've been at Dataiku, so in, in, in the past three years, we've started to see a much greater acceleration in the number of startups, in the enthusiasm around that space both within France and in the United States. We're working with, uh, I'm not sure if he's a managing director or partner, the guy we're working with at First Mark, uh, <laughs> Matt Turk. So he's originally French, but has been you know, working in the U.S. now for, I forget what it is, 10, 15 years, something like that. But he's now you know, working for this New York-based venture capital firm, investing a lot in French companies. Well, one, because he's well-positioned to do so, given you know, his, his personal background. But I was speaking with him when, uh, when I was in New York the last time, and he was saying, you know, just the enthusiasm and the speed at which things are moving in France would make it kind of a dereliction of duty if he weren't the one to be doing that as well. So we see a really a lot of excitement, and then you have things like, uh, like Station F coming up, where you, know, you really get this feeling that there's starting to be something which is coalescing around the French space, uh, the French tech space which is really exciting, right? And so you're going from this previous situation where you had a few examples of successful French companies, tech companies, Critio obviously gets mentioned all the time. A lot of the, or several of the Dataiku co-founders and you know, management team are coming from Exalead, which was acquired uh, by Dassault. What was that, uh, 2010, 2011? We're moving, I think, from that transition where there's a f you know, just a small number of big examples to more of a dynamic ecosystem of both funding, ideas, engineers, business people who are actually starting to coalesce around into something which is potentially quite exciting. 
And Data IQ is looked at as a good example. I hope so. Hopefully, you know, we uh, will continue on and you know, the success that we've enjoyed uh, to date will continue through to whatever the uh, that eventual outcome may be. And hopefully, you know, this could be another example, another proof point that France is capable of, uh, of producing high quality technology, but also then the business around that technology to take it to market, not just in France, but but really worldwide. So that leads well into to wrap up. How do you define success? As a company, what we're looking to do with the, the platform is ideally have it to be that that standard reference. You know, we, we believe in our vision. One of the unique things about .IQ, I think, is that our startup story is pretty boring. There's no crisis moments, no major pivots away from uh, the original vision to something else. We're really you know, working hard to make it so that that vision is broadly accepted as possible, so that you know, it really does become you know, kind of the, the reference for doing data work within the enterprise. What you know, form does that take uh, to get there, right? Is, is that more you know, raising more capital in private markets, public, possible acquisition rate? All of that is, uh, is very much up in the air, but in any case, years away as far as I know. Uh, of course, those are not discussions that I'm involved in. But success would be seeing the largest number of people benefiting from our technology. I think that's what motivates the engineering team, which is building it. And that's what motivates uh, the sales team, which is selling it. So the, the marketing team, which is producing the content around it and the, you know, kind of the, the positioning. Broad adoption and broad use and you know, continuing to improve the product. That, uh, that's ultimately where we would like to get. And to do that, right, we need to keep up with our competitors, go faster, uh, stay ahead of those competitors. And of course, that's really what we're, what we're staying focused on now for the coming months and, and years. What about for you personally? I want to continue growing, doing different things. And so ultimately having, you know, if I'm able to come out of this experience feeling that I learned things, which is already the case, of course, but, you know, more, had more different experiences across that trajectory within, uh, within the company, that to me would be a good sign of success, right? That, uh, that I came away from it, you know, having done, quote unquote, the startup thing. The fact that it ended up being a successful startup is, uh, is even more interesting because you get to see some of the later stages uh, of that growth trajectory uh, as well. It's been so great already that it evaporated tomorrow. I would walk away happy with the, uh, the experience that I've had already. But I'm hoping that the, the next two, three, four years are going to be uh, even more exciting and full of even more new things than the last three years. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you both. wraps up another episode of the Radical Departures podcast. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to our feed on iTunes. And join us next time on Radical Departures.